Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Before I get into today's episode, I want to share that I'm seeking out support in producing, editing, and promoting this podcast. To date, Lucia Simonelli has played that role, and I'm super grateful for her support. But sadly, bandwidth constraints have brought that to an end. I'm looking for someone who is passionate about carbon removal, who can help brainstorm guest ideas, develop thought-provoking interview questions, schedule and join recordings, edit recordings, write up the show notes, and promote the episode on various channels. It's an important job and an exciting opportunity to plug into the carbon removal field. This is a fully remote contract position starting October 1st, amounting to about 8 to 10 hours of work per episode. You don't need to be an expert in podcasting. I certainly wasn't when I started. Just a lot of passion, diligence, organization, and a willingness to learn. If you're interested, send an email to naeem at carboncurve.co with your resume and a letter of interest by September 15th. Okay, let's get on with the show. There are many different storage pathways for carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere. One storage medium that we don't talk about enough is storage of CO2 in long-lived products like concrete. I've always been keen on storing CO2 in concrete because it serves as a valuable storage medium for CO2 in the absence of infrastructure and regulations that enable geologic storage at larger scale. And it helps decarbonize a high-carbon intensity product. My guest today leads a company that is developing ultra-low carbon concrete that is coming off the production line today and demonstrates the exciting potential for integrating carbon removal technologies alongside other decarbonization technologies in existing industrial processes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast app or at carboncurve.substack.com. Okay, let's get started. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Rahul Shandore, CEO of Carbon Build. Rahul is a serial entrepreneur and investor focused on sustainability and health. He is the CEO of Carbon Build, whose technology enables the production of ultra-low carbon concrete, reducing emissions by 70 to 100%. He previously served as co-founder and CEO at Bellwether Bio, whose acquisition by Garden Health led to the launch of the first blood-based colorectal cancer screening test. Rahul's earlier engineering and commercial roles span a wide range of climate-related industries, from plastics at GE, hydrogen fuel cells, Ballard Power Systems, Renewable Fuels and Chemicals at Amaris, and Next Generation Renewable Electricity, also at Power. Rahul earned a BS in Chemical Engineering from MIT and received his MBA from Harvard Business School. Carbon Build is the winner of the Energy Cosia Carbon X Prize. It enables concrete manufacturers to produce ultra-low carbon concrete products with 70 to 100% less embodied carbon. Carbon Built's technology replaces most of the expensive high carbon Portland cement typically used during concrete manufacturing with a proprietary low cost cement alternative made from widely available low carbon materials. These materials harden after chemically reacting with CO2 to not only strengthen the blocks but also permanently store the CO2 in solid form, diverting it from the atmosphere. Because it can be cost-effectively installed at existing concrete manufacturing plants and delivers products that meet ASTM C90 and other applicable industry standards without increasing costs, all the things we'll get into, Carbon Built's technology can be rapidly adopted by the nearly 800 concrete plants in the U.S. alone. We'll be sure to share links to Carbon Built's website and other materials in our show notes. Rahul, thank you for coming on the show. Let's start with some basic background about concrete. What is concrete? And can you explain to our listeners the difference between concrete and cement? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you starting with this question. I'll admit that, you know, while I've been working in climate tech for over 20 years, it really wasn't until I started looking at this opportunity in cement and concrete decarbonization until this distinction really solidified for me. And it's critical, you know, if you're going to think deeply about this opportunity that you you understand that cement is the glue, the ingredient that holds concrete together. So you can't make concrete without cement. And cement's only real use is as a binder for concrete. So but before I get into how cement and concrete are made, I mean, I think it's worth anyone listening to this to just think about concrete for a bit, right? Where you come into contact with it, right? Did you walk on it as you left your house this morning? Did you drive on it? You know, the buildings that you occupy during the day, are they, are they made from it? Does it make up parts of your backyard, your kid's school? It's the world's most manufactured material, which means that it's literally everywhere. And it's, it's so ubiquitous that we don't even think about it anymore. We, we hardly notice it. And, and certainly for those of us that are in the industry, I think as we work more in it, you notice it more and more. So, you know, I think just worth people thinking about that. So concrete is made by combining sand and gravel, which make up the bulk of its volume and mass with Portland cement, water and additives, right? So that's the, those are the ingredients. Cement paste, which is the Portland cement and water hardens. And that's a process that can take days or weeks, depending on the application. It can occur either in the factory for precast applications or in the field for, for cast in place. So that's how concrete is made. Portland cement, which is from a climate standpoint, is a bad actor here. We'll talk more about that in a second. But uh, it is made by heating limestone, clay, and a bit of iron ore to very, very high temperatures, and then grinding that resulting material called clinker uh, together with gypsum. And this process, which is the Portland cement manufacturing process, results in a powder that has the right balance of lime or calcium, silica, alumina, iron oxides, sulfates, uh, that are required to deliver this sort of near magical binding property that, that has enabled the the literal foundation of modern society. Yeah, and your point around it just being so ubiquitous in, in terms of concrete is is so true. I mean, people are familiar with concrete in that we interface with it every day, but its climate impacts are less well-known. Could you give our listeners a sense of the magnitude of emissions that are generated by concrete production globally? And which parts of the production process result in these emissions and why you know, concrete is considered relatively difficult to decarbonize. It's the single most consumed manufactured product on earth. And, and you know, if you step away from manufactured products, only water is consumed more, right? So that gives you a sense for scale. If you want to meaningfully decarbonize concrete, you have to grapple with cement. It's only 10 to 15% of the total weight of concrete, but it contributes about 90% of concrete's carbon footprint. And it's the production of cement, and, and more specifically, the, the fossil fuel combustion that is needed to heat the materials up, as well as one of the key chemical reactions that that heat is triggering, that is responsible for 8% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions, right? So it's, it's really meaningful. When you combine 
cement production with the other activities, uh, mining, transportation, uh, other, other energy use in the transformation, you know, you're easily in the nine, 10% range. And as you said, cement's often lumped in with steel, petroleum refining, and a few other industries. It's kind of hard to abate. But if you think about it from the standpoint of emissions per dollar of revenue or margin, it's actually in a league of its own. Like it's harder than all of those other things. And that's important because I think that metric is a proxy for how much room there is in the cost structure to make changes, right? So, you know, we look at that as as the challenge, right? That's why our team is excited to work on this because it's it's hard. And I think it's worth saying that despite that, concrete use, cement use is not going to slow down because of climate necessities, right? Forces like population growth, increasing urbanization are going to drive concrete use uh, higher. And so it, it's, it's really something we need to solve. We need to figure out how to implement meaningful solutions quickly. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question. I mean, the good news is, is that we are finding ways to significantly reduce concrete's carbon footprint. And that's the reason why you're here. Can you explain CarbonVille's technology for producing ultra-low carbon concrete? And what do you mean by ultra-low? So first, I would agree with your first point, right? More than ever, there are lots of different approaches people are taking to decarbonize at different points in the value chain. Concrete's a commodity. And so I think for me, the issue is not about technologies or approaches, but really about time frame and economics, right? And these are hard problems to solve because of of those challenges, not not just the technical aspects. And, and frankly, this is where I think the carbon belt shines, right? So there's three key elements to that, the approach we're taking. The first is that we, we bolt on to existing concrete production plants. So we're not creating new production infrastructure from scratch. And that means we can move faster. We can leverage a lot of existing asset base that's there today and only make the, the capital investments that are related to decarbonization. Second, uh, and kind of getting into the weeds on what we, we do here is, is our approach has two, two elements at the concrete plant. The first is replacing uh, Portland cement, which is a high cost, high carbon material, as we've talked about, with a proprietary, low carbon, low cost alternative. This is a regionally optimized mixture of byproducts material. So these are things that would otherwise be going to the landfill or used in very low value applications. And we're, you know, we have the know-how to combine those to, to substitute for traditional cement, but they can't substitute on their own. And that brings in the last point is the other ingredient we need is carbon dioxide. In our case, we're using biogenic CO2 to help cure concrete. The CO2 reacts with those alternate materials I talked about to harden, similar to conventional Portland cement. And that in addition to allowing us to reduce the amount of that carbon intensive material, that allows us to take this biogenic CO2 and permanently lock it up in the material. When I say lock it up, not stored in gaseous form, but, but converted into a mineral. Uh, the result, when you combine those together, is a product that has 70 to 100% less embodied carbon than traditional concrete. And we can easily measure the amount of cement use that was avoided and the amount of biogenic carbon that was permanently removed through the 
mineralization. And you asked a question about ultra low. We say ultra low really to differentiate it from the many other offerings that are marginal. And you know, but while those are all good and helpful, uh, I think we would all agree there's a difference between making a 3% change and a 5% change and making a 70 or 80 or 90% change, right? So we're trying to distinguish between those things. And I think that in doing that, we're trying to push the industry and customers to demand more impactful solutions, right? It's not just about doing something different, but about doing something that's meaningfully different. Yeah. And especially for a sector that contributes so much to the climate problem in the first place, it has that high carbon intensity that requires us to take a pretty bold approach to the decarbonization. Does your solution cost more than traditional concrete? And, and how does it differ from conventional concrete in terms of strength and durability? Great, great questions. So our technology, and, and I would say this is, this is fundamental to what got me interested in this technology when it was at UCLA. It's fundamental to how our partners and producers think about it, right? This is a commodity. And that what I'm about to say holds for any commodity. There's very little interest you know, from a scale standpoint in more expensive commodities, right? Period. So our technology allows our producer partners to sell ultra low carbon concrete at the same price as traditional products. That's, that's really important. We're able to do that because we replace that high cost traditional cement. It's the most expensive material in the cost structure of concrete with a lower cost alternative. And that creates more than enough room in the cost stack to source waste biomass, to add some extra electricity, and deliver a return on that retrofit capital investment. In terms of the performance, the products are a like-for-like -like replacement for traditional products in terms of strength and durability. You, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference if they were side-by-side. And that's really what gets us excited. It's kind of the normalcy, right, of this ability to produce a substantially decarbonized product without premium price, without needing a new specification, without needing to have exceptions in the codes and standards. That's the thing that enables scale in the near term. It's worth noting that there are different kinds of concrete. So you have wet cast concrete, which we're familiar with, you know, in terms of Concrete trucks. This is produced as a as a wet slurry. It can be used in precast and cast in place applications like sidewalks and roads and walls and bridges and pipes. And then dry cast, which includes precast applications like concrete blocks and pavers and retaining wall segments. And while our underlying technology is adaptable for wet cast applications, we're very focused commercially on the dry cast portion of the market. We'll build the company around that, those applications, and then, and then move on. It's worth saying that it's just technically easier to deliver substantial decarbonization of a dry cast product while maintaining good economics. So economics is definitely our theory of change and ad adoption at Carbon Built. So it, just given that, it makes sense to focus there. And I would say the market's uh, big enough to be the foundation of our company. And so that made a lot of logical sense to us. I think the other piece worth noting is that there are a lot of other aspects of adoption that are made easier 
when you're working at a manufacturing plant rather than curing or on a job-by-job basis in the field? Ability to get scale, complexity, are you permitting a small change to a plant or do you have local field inspectors with a lot of discretion, uh, you know, deciding what can go or not, quality control, all these things are easier in a precast situation. And then the last thing I would say is when we look at precast versus wet cast, you know, precast is where the market is heading overall, right? And I think particularly when you look at developing countries and the places that are going to have massive increases in concrete use to house people as they come to the cities. Certainly other things like data centers and warehouses, industrial buildings, but precast is where the future is. And and I think that's, in addition, sort of one of the things that's helped move us in that direction. So when you put all those together, I think it points us to precast. And then, you know, if if you spend any time in a startup, you know, it's important to focus. And so that's really the story of why we're, we're focused on Drycast today. Yeah. And it sounds like you've cracked the code on potentially eliminating the green premium for low carbon concrete or ultra low carbon concrete in your case. And it's effectively drop in ready in that it seems ready to use in typical concrete applications. So you mentioned that you're focusing on the Drycast sector within the broader concrete space. What is needed to consider your technology commercially viable? And are there quality tests or other things that need to be done in order to make it commercially viable going forward? Yeah. So we've begun commercial production at our first retrofit plant that's in Alabama, about an hour southeast of Birmingham. Uh, We announced that about a month ago. So concrete blocks are rolling off their production lines and are starting to be used in a range of projects across the region. And yeah, in order to get to this point, we've had to meet the existing ASTM standards that cover strength and a number of other performance specifications. We do a lot of that testing ourselves, but before we can go commercial, that has to be done by certified third-party labs. And we'll continue to do that testing. This is a new product new approach. We're going to be testing more than you would expect for the approach that people have been using for a hundred years. So certainly that has to be there, but it is against existing specifications, right? Not some new emerging spec. That's on the performance side. And I think that's really what's important for the average customer. But obviously part of our value proposition is the carbon impact as well. And on that front, we measure and track uh, everything that's happening at the plant that's relevant to that calculation that goes from the weight of the raw materials that we're using, the new raw materials, to the the carbon content of the blocks, to the energy we're using. So all that's getting measured. Climate Earth, which is the leading provider of environmental product declarations for the concrete industry, will create a formal third-party EPD, as these are referred to, for these products after we've got a year's worth of data, which is the requirement for these. And this will include measurement and verification of the carbon mineralization and avoidance. So yeah, so lots of testing. And I think we are on the front lines of all the learnings on measurement, reporting, verification. I think we definitely think of ourselves as the leader on that front. Let's get into your recent announcement with your commercial partnership with Blair Block, a concrete masonry production facility in Alabama that you mentioned. 
Can you tell us more about how this partnership works, the production scale of the plant, and by how much the integration of your technology will really reduce that company's emissions? Yeah, absolutely. We're we're super excited about the getting to this stage in our evolution and and actually the place we're working and the people we're working with. So the, the partnership is really the latest stage in a relationship that started when the technology was back at UCLA and, and Matt Blair at Blair Block worked with that team on the second pilot. So he had a familiarity with the team, with the technology, and that certainly helped uh, accelerate his thought process. In terms of scale, this is a, a very typical plant. The average plant in the U.S. has two lines about this size. And so this is not a pre-commercial pilot or something we need to scale up from. It, it is the typical size of a plant. In terms of what we've done there, it's, it's fairly simple. We've installed some gas processing equipment at the site, along with a, a biomass furnace and some piping into the existing curing chambers. We've designed an alternative mix that relies on locally available byproduct materials. And then the plant runs the way it normally does, except there's one extra material at the starting point, which is waste biomass. Uh, a few other, the cement, instead of using Portland cement, there's a, a mixture of some other things that we've talked about. But then the blocks coming out, that's all done. The, the, the mixing, the, the palletizing, the storing of blocks in the field, all that is exactly the same as it is today, except those blocks have way less embodied carbon than the ones Matt was making two months ago. Uh, this first line that we've converted will avoid at least 2,000 tons of CO2 emissions per year, plus remove on the order of 500 tons of this biogenic CO2. Certainly with process optimization, integration of additional lines, this will go up over time. And then sometime in 2024, when we've got a full year of data, uh, we'll be getting that EPD from Climate Earth to confirm the numbers I just told you. Right. It sounds like you have a commercial scale facility already operating uh, with the potential to reduce the emissions of that plant by 2,000 tons per year. And in addition, removes and permanently stores 500 tons of CO2 per year. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure Blair would consider those 2,000 tons of emissions at the plant because they're buying cement. Those are really emissions associated with the production of that cement. It's embodied in their product, but it's happening elsewhere. And then the 500 tons, they're removing that actually, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's helpful to know because I think some folks don't realize that what we're doing here in terms of low carbon concrete applications is that there's a, a reduction element and a removal element that benefit. And, and when we talk about in the carbon removal world, the importance of reducing emissions being priority number one and removal being done alongside that, uh, you're kind of doing it in real life with your innovation on the reduction and removal together. And then it seems like what Carbon Built has been doing is selling a sort of hybrid credit for about $160 per ton. Is this representative of the technology's cost? And which projects or costs do these credits fund or cover? You know, how important is all of that revenue stream to Carbon Built's operation? Yeah, it's a great question. So first, the 160 per ton is our avoidance credit. And it's important for us to, uh, even if we do 
on occasions sell these and bundle them as hybrids to be very clear uh, how much is coming from removal, how much is coming from avoidance and distinguishing between those things. Not because one is better or worse than the other, as you said, as a society, we need both of these things. We are certainly uh, happy about and like the fact that what we're doing does both. But you know, these mean different things to different people. Different customers are interested in one or the other. And uh, we think it makes sense that they each have their own underlying price. So the second part of your question, while the technology delivers a compelling return on its own based on those cost reductions, the additional revenue from carbon credits, which is shared with our partners, sweetens this return and can be a huge difference maker in getting a, a producer to agree to move forward, right? The, remember, these, this is a traditionally conservative and risk-averse industry. Most people are not going to change the way they've been doing business and making their product, which is probably the same way their parents and grandparents made it in many cases for a zero return or even a low return uh, opportunity. So this helps accelerate those decisions and actions and allows decarbonization to move to the top of that list of capital investments that they always have the opportunity to make, right? Concrete's a, a hyper-local market. So what happens in in one part of the country doesn't necessarily influence what happens in another part. And we really want to be transforming the industry everywhere quickly. And as I said earlier, our theory of change on how we do this is economics. And if we can deliver value in, in terms of avoidance and removal, monetizing that value helps producers move faster. And that's good. That's a really catalytic element of this is the opportunity to share those revenues with producers and, and get them online faster. And thank you for the clarification on how, how the credits work. I think, I think I like that better. The idea that we are thinking about avoidance credits differently than potential removal credits. Is the introduction of separate credits for the removal aspect something that you all are thinking about? Is that in the pipeline at all? Yeah, we've kind of got that now. Like, so we've got avoidance credits available at our website or via patch or watersheds platforms, but then we've got carbon removal credits we've sold at a higher price. So our Stripe and Shopify deals are public. Those are removal deals. We have others that are not. Pricing on the rules is is variable and it's it's calibrated based on the the cost of a given source of carbon dioxide, right? Biomass would be different than DAC, for example, right? Whether we can bring renewable energy to the site, et cetera. So in our view, anyone purchasing these credits, whether it's the avoidance or the removal side, really should be thinking about as much or more than just their own offsetting their emissions, right? This as an investment in the transformation of a carbon intensive industry and in a path that can do this and make a lot of change in a relatively short time period. We need to make some change here in the next 5, 10, 20 years. The technological and macro level changes that will take 50, 100 years to transform industry. Those are great. We need those, but we have a more urgent problem here and you can't transform. You've got a very capital intensive approach to this. There's only so much you can do. And we have to be realistic about what can be done in five or 10 years. So I think that's critical. Investing in things that can meaningfully decarbonize concrete in the next 20 years. Right? With all of the 
controversy and questions surrounding the traditional way we think about carbon offsets and the voluntary carbon market. How does your model help navigate some of the complexities of the voluntary carbon markets, given how you're thinking about carbon credits in the context of your technology? That's a great question. And I'll refrain from making sort of absolutist comments about one type of credit or another. I think we see value in a lot of the work that's happening in, in decarbonization across different sectors. But obviously there's the value in the permanence uh, of mineralization that is hard to argue with. So within that, I would say one of the things we're excited about that I think is helping to reduce the noise and chaos and controversy is the emerging concept referred to as insetting. And this is one where traditional buyers of concrete, which is you know almost anyone really, but obviously there's industries that have more scope three emissions related to concrete than less, where those companies may try first to, to try to decarbonize those products. In many cases, they won't have a viable path to substantially decarbonize those emissions, at least not in a way that is at all economically viable. And so one option they have is to buy credits that are associated with uh, decarbonizing concrete. It just is someone else's concrete that might not care about the decarbonization piece. So this allows you to do some trading and unlock the benefits of, of liquidity and market, but keep it within the same product category. So you're not in effect, trading apples for oranges. We have direct relationships, many real estate infrastructure sorts of companies who would be covered by this sort of, and always interested in more, but as they look within their supply chains and their concrete use related emissions that are looking for alternate ways to accomplish that goal that is more practical than maybe decarbonizing their own use and is more linked to what they're doing than investing in agriculture or cook stoves or forestry related work, which is again, important, but a different thing than concrete. The thing that I'm passionate about, which is how do we find innovative ways to support and catalyze this transformation you're talking about? And Carbon Built is part of the first project funded by the Four Corners Coalition. Can you tell us a bit more about this coalition and your involvement in its carbon removal campaign? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this one was a great project for us to get involved with. We had already been talking to a concrete producer in Arizona about a more traditional, we'll call it retrofit. So probably one using biomass. Uh, when we saw the Four Corners RFP, we applied for that and we're obviously very excited to be selected. Uh, the, the basic approach here is similar to the one we've used in Alabama at Blair Block. But instead of using biomass-based CO2, we'll be using direct air capture as the CO2 source. And, you know, this has always been part of our vision in terms of where we thought the technology and business would head in the long term, but we're not a DAC developer ourselves. And we felt that we'd have to wait till that technology came along. So with Four Corners RFP, this really gave us a way to catalyze a reference project for doing something sooner rather than later. And it's a great opportunity to show how you could take CO2 from the air and rather than just burying it underground, you know, bury it above ground. As these technologies come down the cost curve, we're going to need to go underground for scale, right? No one would question that. Uh, as they're coming down the cost curve, 
to take something that is a cost today, an additional cost, right? Above the capture system, the underground storage and the cost of time, right? We all know that there's, there's a challenge getting these, getting underground storage permitted. So to take all that stuff and be able to turn it into a product, we think can, can help accelerate that down the cost curve. And so we're excited to be able to show that sooner rather than later. We do consider ourselves part of the broader DAC community, even if we're not doing that development ourselves. And I think this is one of these industries that is going to require leadership, not just from individual technology developers, but also you've got the Frontiers, the DAC Coalition, government, lots of others who are part of the ecosystem that can help scale and drive it down the cost curve. And, and we think you know, economically viable utilization, large-scale utilization opportunities like the one we're providing are a critical part of that as well. So we're, we're aiming to be the first plant in the world that will use a modular on-site direct air capture integrated with concrete production. You know, hopefully there'll be more. That's really cool. I, I remember kind of thinking about the potential for that with, with Chris and Idle at the Open Air Collective. And I know we also put together a, a white paper with Carbon 180 some time back around the potential to pair direct air capture and concrete. And at the time, it was just kind of thinking, and it's been really cool to see you all just take that dream and turn it into a reality. Because frankly, a lot of direct air capture companies are going to be struggling to figure out the storage part of the equation and partnering with groups like Carbon Bill, I think, gives them a really great off-ramp for the CO2 that they're capturing to put it to useful application, I think is a, a really cool opportunity. I would say from the inbound interest we get, I would agree with that statement. It's not a technical issue, right? I mean, in the end, it's CO2. And if you have a way to take CO2 and use it into things, the integration piece is not I mean, there's engineering, but this isn't a lot of magic in that. Doing it economically, right, in a way that is scalable is the key. And you get different answers for different types of direct air capture, different types of utilization. And so sort of being able to stitch all that together in a way that in the end still has to deliver cost-effective price parity product to an end consumer, right? What was really cool about this project with the Four Corners Coalition is that it's ultimately local. And it's something that you said earlier about the concrete industry itself as a hyper-local industry. And so it fits really well with Carbon Build. And that kind of makes me think about the community engagement part of, of all of this work. You know, community-driven projects are, are really important, not only because they ensure that local communities are, are directly involved in these projects, but it also ensures that we can help drive public acceptance more broadly for sectors like carbon removal and carbon utilization. How easily do you think projects like the one that you're undertaking in, in Alabama can be replicated? And are there particular regions or geographies that lend themselves to these projects better than others? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. And we've emphasized a few times that this is a very local business. This is because concrete is heavy. Like, but it's very simple in terms of why you can't ship the product very far. I'd love to be able to produce carbon negative concrete in one place and ship it all around the world to the customers who are interested, but that's just not practical, right? So instead of one big factory that's shipping its products for thousands of miles, you see lots of small factories shipping products short distances. So yeah, so there's an inherent automatic sort of localization. I put some numbers to this. There's about 800 plants in the U.S., Alone regionally, you know, per capita use of 
Drycast in particular, oh. where we're focused, is greater in the southeast. But you know, there's plants everywhere. You know, pavers, concrete block, retaining walls. There's nowhere that doesn't use them. So you see these plants everywhere. You know, small scale modular DAC can be integrated anywhere, right? It, I think depending on what the the electricity prices and and emission factor of the grid is, that might bias places more appropriate for DAC, places that have waste biomass and plentiful supply like the Southeast or Northwest are, are probably more advantaged than that. But there's not one location that is kind of the only place you'll see this. You know, the other thing I think worth noting when we talk about community impacts and benefits is the fact that we don't have any incremental land use, right? I think there's certainly aspects of decarbonizing our economy as a whole that are going to have to be done in centralized plants to get the economies of scale we need. They're greenfield, so you're going to have to go through and work through a lot of these processes, which we have to do, but take time and take money, right? One of the benefits of what we're doing and it allows us to say with confidence that we can achieve some of our objectives, you know, we're in more control of what we're doing and can drive them faster is that we're implementing these at existing sites where we don't have to expand the boundaries of that site. Uh, and that, that, that's a huge difference, right? Huge enabler for us. And, you know, community participation is kind of automatic because this product is not getting shipped out of the community. The people that work there are from the community. I'm not saying there's no work to do, but it's minimal. If we think about any negative impacts, it's really minimal given the, the context. Yeah. yeah. And how do you think about some of the other barriers to scaling carbon-built technology? We've covered a few on the course of this conversation, but what do you see as the major barriers to scaling low or ultra-low carbon concrete more generally? And, and what role... I'm going to put my policy hat on here for a second. What role do you see policy playing to help overcome some of these barriers? Yeah, great question. So really the barriers are all around just how do we build on what we've demonstrated already to go as fast as possible? And, and again, I reinforce that good economics, low CapEx, the ability because these are small plants to quickly get to debt financing. These are really important, right? And will help us drive scale up. They're more important than the sustainability benefits, because whether we were reducing carbon footprint by 60% or 100%, the ability to go quick because good economics are driving things is what's going to make the difference. We have plenty of customer interest. So it's all about then execution capability. And the question we're asking ourselves, is how do we go from delivering one line per year per 10 employees to going to 10 lines per year per employee, right? Not easy, but definitely a better problem to work on than solving a science problem or a fundamental economics problem. So it's going to be about standardizing uh, process discipline and partnerships. And that's really the mode we're moving in. And that's exciting. On the policy side in particular, again, great, great question. There's a handful of things. I think first and foremost, obviously, with the passage of Inflation Reduction Act and some of the specific elements coming out of that, which we're getting to work on this year. There's there's grants, there's tax credits, and all these things, just like carbon credits, right? In the end, you can turn them into an improved internal rate of return, 
on equity that's going to help these projects move faster. It will help bring projects that might have had a more marginal return and will make those go above whatever the party's rate is. So, um, and that's all going to help. All that does is move the adoption curve sooner. And I've already said, we should have a sense of urgency about doing this. There's other policy changes that are important, procurement policies, local incentives, and all of that helps. I wouldn't point to one of them and say one is magic. Like in the end, it's uh, being able to deliver the same performance out of mostly existing assets and do it in a way that is delivering economic value to the existing value chain. That's what's going to drive this. I think the only constraint I would say is just supply chain management. In the end, this is a materials business and we have to move stuff around. This is not a science problem or a technology problem, but I think if we think about our scale ambitions, we have to be able to, to support uh, that piece of the business. We're using different materials and it's a capability set we have already and will continue to grow. That's great. I'm a big fan of what you're working on here and all of the different kind of challenges that you're tackling uh, are really exciting. And I think not just because they're relevant to, to carbon removal, but because they think they tackle the broader question of how are we going to decarbonize a really hard to decarbonize sector. And so I think it's really critical that we continue to support innovations like this. How can people who are listening learn more or get in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, I th- it's probably tried to say, but if you go to our website, you can find a couple ways to get in touch there. And whether that's because you're in the concrete production business or are interested in carbon credits, uh, interested in employment, the website will give you ways to reach out on all those fronts. Wonderful. I encourage people to learn more about this pathway and about this particular suite of technologies and find ways to get involved. Rahul, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Knight.